RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Over summer, we'd like to share with you some interviews from the recent past. These stories have proven popular among fellows over the last couple of years, and they're topics we believe new listeners to RAC's post-op podcast may enjoy too. We do hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr Will Cairns from August 2017. Huge advances in medicines, treatments, technology and surgical procedures have contributed to the long lives so many of us are able to enjoy today. Increasing numbers of us will reach extreme old age, and certainly our lifespans have doubled in the past century. But particularly as we reach old age or with extreme illness, decisions about medical interventions become problematic as doctors balance the availability of amazing modern treatments against outcomes and the wishes and expectations of patients. Dr Will Cairns is a palliative medicine specialist at Queensland Health in Townsville, where he's lived and worked for almost 40 years. Dr Cairns spoke recently at the RACS Queensland Annual State Meeting. He brings his long experience into play when he stresses the importance of close conversations with patients to help them fully understand the implications of treatments and for their concerns and ultimate decisions about the treatment to be respected. Dr Cairns discusses issues around palliative care with Heather Dawson, starting by reminding us about how times have changed. Well, I think when I started in medicine, no one actually knew the words palliative care and certainly I didn't discover them till I'd been a doctor for maybe five or six or seven years. I don't think palliative care was anywhere on anyone's radar until well into the 80s, and I qualified in 1977. So I don't think anyone had any expectations. But certainly, and particularly over the last 10 years, I think people have become much more aware of palliative care. I think that's partly because of the efforts at promotion and communication about the need for end-of-life care, and I think as part of the debate about euthanasia and assisted suicide, but also because I think people are living so much longer and they're starting to think about the end of their life in a way that we didn't do back when I started in medicine. Because there's a balance, wouldn't you say, between quality and quantity of life, isn't there? I think so. I think that for all of us, and particularly now with the modern technologies that are available, there are so many things we can do to prolong the time of someone's life, but it is also possible to keep people alive or stop them from dying, should I say, without necessarily maintaining their ability to function independently and meet the definition of quality of life in their own terms. I think quality of life is something that people define for themselves. And sometimes now there is a risk that people will suddenly find themselves in a position that they are living a life that doesn't meet their own expectations of what they would do. And I think that's a challenge for us as doctors and as patients, the patients that we will all become one day, to try to work out where the balance sits for us. So how can medical professionals be wise and avoid futility in the care that they deliver? Well, for me, I define futility as something that won't achieve the desired end. And the end that people may be in pursuit of can be different for different people. So the doctor's goal may be to treat the disease, whereas the patient may be thinking about what is the impact on my life? Is this going to achieve for me the life that I want? So I think it's first of all important to think about what the meaning of the word futility is. And it is something that, again, as with quality of life, it's something we would define for ourselves. The second thing is that it's really important that we think about the fact that 
for all of us, life is finite. Whatever we do, and in spite of the wonders of modern technology, and in no way should anything I say be interpreted as meaning that we shouldn't be applying technology to the best advantage of patients, and there are so many amazing things being invented at such a rate at the moment, it's very hard to keep track of it. But whatever we do, eventually our systems wear out and wear down. And so we need to think about what it is that we can achieve for our patients and recognize that our lives are finite. I think one of the things that people have come to appreciate is that while the life expectancy, the median life expectancy in our community has doubled from about 40 to about 80 over the past 150 years, the maximum, maximum life expectancy of the oldest person hasn't really changed at all. There have always been a few people who got to 110 Admittedly, there are more of them now because they don't die of other things first. But when people die in extreme old age, they just sort of stop if they don't get a disease. Our systems just all wind down very slowly. And even a 117-year-old person, they just tick along very quietly. And then one day things start to slow down. They stop eating. They spend more time sleeping. And then they just grind to a halt. And I think that if we don't get an illness, that's something that would happen to all of us. So we need to recognize that all of our lives are finite. I think the other thing is that not everyone's maximum is 115. They're the outliers. For most of us, the maximum life expectancy is probably somewhere between about 75 and 95, depending on our genes and how we've led our lives. Well, Dr. Cairns, you also say we need to explore the values, goals, hopes and wishes of patients. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that it's important to remember that while for us, the delivery of healthcare is what we do in our lives. For patients, healthcare is something that provides them with uh, the opportunity to achieve certain things in their life, whether it's increasing the duration of their life, and that may be something that's very important when they're younger. But as they get older, I think there's a lot of evidence that people start to think more about, well, what's it going to mean for me if I have this operation or take this medication? How's it going to make my life better in terms of the way I live my life? So in order to fulfill the patient's needs, we really need to work out with them, either us or someone else, uh, what's important for them in their life. What do they value most? What are they hoping to achieve? Uh, what are they hoping for? And for some people, as they get older, it might be just to spend more time with their family. And what are they wishing for? But unless we explore those things with patients and find out what the patient wants, then it's very hard to know that the things we do to people are going to achieve those ends for them. We can't focus on the one indicator of our success, which is life expectancy. We need to look at the other qualitative outcomes as well. Okay, well, another point you raise is that surgeons should avoid feeling that they need to validate the things that they've been trained to do. Can you elaborate on what you mean there? Well, I don't think it applies to surgeons. I think it applies to all of us in terms of thinking that, and I guess the very simple paradigm, if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail. That's a very simplistic view of things. But I think that we tend to look at the things we do as being having value in themselves. And that's what we do. And therefore, in order to validate ourselves, we need to do the things that we have been trained to do. And I know there was a big study in the United States which compared the way that surgeons and urologists and radiation oncologists treated prostate cancer. And they asked them what would they recommend to their patients. And needless to say, the radiation oncologist said that radiation was the best modality of treatment and the surgeon said that surgery was, even though at that time for the procedure they're talking about, the outcomes were the same. And we need to have these things. We need to value the things that we do. 
but we need to not get so embedded in the things that we do that we think that they're the only choice the patient may have. I think also that um, while we may think it's an important thing and the outcomes that we can achieve are beneficial to the patient, they may actually be beneficial to the patient in one domain, but not in the things that the patient values as being important. So we need to be able to stand back. I know in palliative care, I run the risk of being nihilistic about treatments because I tend to see the patients who haven't done well with, say, chemotherapy or radiation or whatever. So I have to remind myself that the patients I see are not necessarily indicative of the population and the outcomes as a whole. And then you say that doctors need to deal with uncertainty and probability. Yeah, I think that's one of the great challenges of medicine is that when we have patients in front of us and we sit down and we talk about the things that we're offering for them, there's always a degree of uncertainty about what the outcome might be. We need not to oversell our successes, but at the same time, we have to be positive and constructive and optimistic about the outcomes while accepting responsibility if things don't go so well. You can't do that in retrospect. You can't look back and say, oh, yes, I made a brilliant choice there because it had a good outcome, because you then also have to accept the fact that when things don't go well, that's also a consequence of the choices that we made with the patient. And it's very hard to communicate that uncertainty and probability, I think, when patients are, are dealing with difficult choices about treatments. And I think it's fair to say that given the complexity of modern medicine, it can be very hard for patients to understand the complexities of their outcomes as well. And we need to be positive enough to be able to communicate with our patients in terms of making sure that they don't reject things which are going to be beneficial, but also that they understand that there are risks for them and for their families indirectly. So how do you negotiate with a patient about what to do? Well, I think for me, negotiation is just a way of describing how we need to understand what the patient's wishes and goals are, and they need to understand what they are themselves. Sometimes that means sitting down with them, spending a bit of time just talking about what their expectations of the treatment are in terms of what the experience will be like. And many patients have said, I didn't realise it was going to be like this. They have to understand the probabilities, the likelihood of success and of harm. And they need to understand what their life might be like afterwards and what kind of support will be provided for them. Do you think these situations become more complicated when you need to communicate with or negotiate with the families as well? Well, up here in northern Queensland, we talk about the relative who comes up from Melbourne. You may say the same about Townsville from Melbourne. (laughs) Uh, But I think that often families can be very helpful and very constructive. But sometimes the reasons for them wishing to participate in the discussions can be about their needs as well. So part of the negotiation and the conversation is about making sure that when we do things, it's in the patient's interests, not in their family's interests. Now, sometimes patients do things because they want to please their family members. And it can be quite a complex discussion. But I think in the end, we have a duty when we're dealing with families just to bring it back to what's in the interest of the patients, what are achievable outcomes, what's likely for the patient, what's their life likely to be after we've um, completed our interventions. Maybe the families don't realise sometimes the level of commitment that's required from them. None of these things are arguments against doing things, but it's very important that families understand outcomes. So we need to have those conversations that involve families so everyone gets onto the same page and understands what's going on, which is why we're encouraging much more that patients do advanced care planning while they're well and that their family understand what their wishes and goals are for the remainder of their life. 
Well, Dr Cairns, when you were a junior doctor in Townsville, you worked with a, a Dr Dennis Campbell. What did you learn from him? Well, I came to Townsville as a second-year doctor, and um, that was in 1978, and uh, worked in the emergency department, as all doctors did, as part of our rotation through the hospital. And we got to meet a lot of doctors. Dennis Campbell was a general surgeon who was well-known in the community, and there were a couple of experiences that really shaped my career. The first was one night we had a patient come into the emergency department after a car crash, and he had a ruptured liver. And in those days, we only had one doctor in the emergency department and one registered nurse. It was much quieter, so we often had to sleep too. But um, I don't think that happens nowadays. So Dennis Campbell came in from home and the patient went off to the operating theatre and died on the operating table. He'd obviously had a pretty big smash. And the patient's wife had, I can't remember whether she came in the ambulance or arrived later, but after the patient had died, Dennis came down at about three o'clock in the morning and spent a good half hour just talking with her about what had happened and just providing her with support in this terribly shocking circumstance. And another time when I was um, just starting off as a rookie GP, we shared a patient I'd referred to him who had advanced cancer. And I was a bit wary of home visits then because in those days you didn't have this sort of well-structured training program with support. So in general practice, you could just go and set up and then do your exams. So I was out there being a GP and I'd refer this man to, to Dennis. The patient was dying at home and I was a bit scared of doing home visits. So Dennis went out one night at about 11 or 12 and saw the patient at home, sought out some medication. The patient died and Dennis counseled the family, sorted out the undertaker, and he did all those things. He never mentioned to me that he'd done it. I knew I found out that he'd done it. And uh, I realised that he was just being an example for me. And I realised from that 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 was the kind of thing my patients should expect from me. He was a surgeon who always engaged with his patients. He discussed with them the pros and cons of the things that he was offering and would make wise choices with them. And for me, that's really what medicine's all about. It's trying to work out which of the things that I offer to this patient are going to bring them a benefit. And the only way I could find that out is to talk to people. I made up a quote a couple of years ago, which is that two weeks in ICU will save you one hour of conversation. So I think that it's very important that doctors do invest a bit of time in their patients because in the long run, the things that we do to them can be very burdensome and so we need to make sure that that's what they want and that's going to bring them a benefit. I think equally, when they choose not to have some procedure we're offering, whether it's chemotherapy or surgery or dialysis or any of the modern technological things that can extend people's lives, we need to make sure that they continue to be supported because our duty to our patients doesn't end because they're not having the thing that we have to offer. Whether as an individual person we offer that support or ensure that someone else does it, we have a duty to make sure that patients do get supported throughout their lives. And so for me, that's becoming more and more important a role of medicine. Dr Will Cairns, palliative medicine specialist at Queensland Health. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.